you very much. Amen and amen. Only time will tell the significance of all that God's doing and what he's done today. If you would, uh, turn to Luke chapter 20. And we are going to actually talk about something that relates very closely to the heart of elder ministry, which is the Bible. But we're going to talk about it in terms of Q&A with God, because what we find in Luke chapter 20 is just that, people encountering the Lord Jesus and asking him questions, and then the Lord Jesus himself asking a question of those who are questioning him. Let me read for us verses 20 through 44, then we'll pray again, and then we'll look at this passage together and hopefully uh, get some encouragement um, for us today in light of our own interaction with the Bible. In verse 20, actually I'm going to back up to verse 19 because it's really the lead-in to verse 20. It says in Luke 20, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him, speaking of Jesus, that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second, and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore... Which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die any more, because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised... Even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord 
said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it, help us to see what's going on in this passage and what what you're saying in this passage, and also help us to see how it applies to our own lives today. We pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. We pray that you would work in our hearts for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to begin by just asking the question, How closely do you read your Bible? Now, obviously, that assumes you read your Bible. And uh, unfortunately, in our country, one of the things that has been confirmed over and over again is that in our country, at least, those many of those who profess to be Christians oftentimes don't read their Bibles or read it very infrequently. And so it is a valid question, are we reading our Bibles? But there's also the other dynamic that there can be a reading of the Bible that is very brief, like I can take five or ten minutes to read it, and depending on how much I want to read during that time, I may not even have time to think about what I'm reading before I've shut the Bible and I've moved on with my day. And so I, I want us to think about practically Do I read the Bible on a regular basis, whatever that looks like, and do I read it closely? Do I take time to really think about it? And it's really important in light of something I heard this week about um, an NFL quarterback. He's a professional football player who uh, did an interview, and he talked about his upbringing in a Christian home. And he said, you know, my parents uh, took me to church every Sunday and you know, it was boring to me, and I couldn't wait to get back home and watch the football game after church on Sunday. But he said, when I got into high school, I got involved in in Young Life. And Young Life uh, had a leader that was really, he said, a really cool guy, and I, he liked sports too. And so I really enjoyed Young Life in high school. But then I went on to college, and I began meeting people that weren't Christians, and they had other religions and other kinds of spirituality. And so I began to question, you know, uh, some things. And, and so he talked about the fact that uh, the kinds of questions he was asking is like this. And this is a quote from the interview. He said, I came to the place where I was asking this question. What type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all of this. So he's talking about um, the reality that not everyone's going to be saved, that there is a hell according to the Bible and according to Christianity. And he made a comment at one point where he said, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. Now, you could pick that apart, and I would, if I had the chance, if I was talking to him in terms of the kind of assumptions that lie behind that kind of statement, that most people are going to hell. There are some well-respected theologians that I know that would argue against 
that. Uh, there are plenty of theologians that would argue against the idea that God wants to send most people to hell. So there are all kinds of assumptions that are being made about God based on what he had heard or what his experience with Christianity was or what his reading of the Bible produced. But I would argue that if he read the Bible more closely, he would see a different picture than the one that he's painting of God. And that's my point is that in this passage, what we see happening here is a couple of groups of people that are coming to Jesus and they have questions. But their questions are based on some faulty assumptions. They're also being uh, asked from a perspective of not really wanting good answers, but just wanting to destroy Jesus. And so you've got these groups coming to Jesus and they're asking questions. But I want to just highlight the fact that all of us have questions. None of us in here are omni, uh, omniscient. We don't know all things. And therefore, we have questions. We have questions about God. We have questions about life. We have questions about uh, our own relationship with God. We have questions about you know, why things happened. And, and a lot of things. We have questions about what we find in the Bible. And ultimately, the question is, how are we handling our questions you know, um, I, I firmly believe that God created us to find our happiness in him, to find our joy in him, to enjoy him as the supreme good that he is. And yet I read the Gospels and I see people opposed to Jesus who is God in the flesh, who is good in the flesh, who is love in the flesh, and they're rejecting him. And at least part of the reason is they have questions that they do not believe are being adequately answered. And they're allowing their questions to keep them from engaging with Jesus and engaging with God in a way that could really result in them having their questions answered. And so some people have questions about God and they decide, I'm just going to I'm going to do something else, just like this NFL professional football player was saying, you know, I just decided to go in a different direction because his questions about the Christian God moved him to say, ah, I'm not going to try to have those questions answered. I'm not going to try to find good questions to those answers. I'm just going to kind of go off in a different direction. Now, there are others who may, in some sense, actually go to Jesus or go to the Christian God, so to speak, with their questions, but they may do it like these religious leaders. They may do it trying to trap God with some wrongdoing. That's what they were doing. They were, they were trying to trap Jesus in a wrongdoing to lead him to death. We can ask questions of God in such a way that we're really trying to rid ourselves of feeling like we have any obligation to God. God, you're wrong, therefore I don't have to honor you. I don't have to even acknowledge you. Because, obviously, if there's any truth to this in the Bible, then you can't be a good God. If you could actually allow this to happen, then you must not be a good God. So, there are different ways we can handle our questions that are 
poor ways to handle our questions. We can do it in a way that just kind of decides, I don't want anything to do with that God. Or we may be more like the religious leaders who go on the attack, trying to point out wrongdoing in the God that we're dealing with. Well, what I'd like to do is... um, just briefly describe what's going on in each of these scenarios and then apply it as we think about the issue of questions. And so in verses 20 through 26, we um, have a question about taxes. There was um, a guy who was vacationing um, one time in Acapulco, and he noticed a a woman who was trying to help her child who was... um, obviously in distress, and he walked over to the child, and um, he didn't really understand Spanish much, but somehow he figured out that the child had something stuck in his throat. And so he immediately picked him up by the ankles like this and shook him, and a quarter came out of his mouth. And the mother was so thankful, and she said, wow, that's great. How'd you know what to do? Are you a doctor? And he said, oh, no, I work for the IRS. If there's anybody that can get money out of you, it's the IRS. Now, we laugh at that joke because all of us struggle with paying taxes. Now, why do we struggle with paying taxes? Well, it could be a number of different reasons. One reason is we don't think they're doing a very good job of spending our money. Um, We're opposed to the government that wants our taxes, That's exactly what's going on here in this day and time in Israel. They're being ruled by the Roman government. The Roman government is forcing them to pay taxes. They don't like being ruled by the Roman government. They don't want to pay the taxes. And it's even more complicated because, you notice, uh, when they ask Jesus the question, you know, is it lawful to pay taxes or not? They're they're trying to pigeonhole Jesus into saying, uh, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, which would upset the Roman government, or yes, you should pay taxes, which would upset the people in Israel. And they ask this question to try to, one way or the other, get somebody upset at Jesus and get him in trouble. He says, show me a coin, show me a denarius. And so they pull out a Roman coin, a denarius, and they show it to him. And on that coin would have been a picture at that time of Tiberius Caesar. His head would be on the head side, and on the tail side would be a picture of him, or would have been a picture of him sitting on a throne with a crown on his head, clothed as a high priest. How did the Jews look at that? It would have been very easy for them to look at that as you're trying to make me make a choice between worshiping God or worshiping Caesar. And there was some of that, especially as the first century goes on, that idea becomes even more strong in the first century. may have been already kicked around in different ways, even at this early stage. But what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say, um, yeah, Rome wants you to worship them, so therefore you should not pay taxes. He doesn't say that. What he says is, he says, show me the denarius. He says, okay, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They say Caesar's. And he says, then render 
to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He says this little piece of money, this Roman coin has an image of Caesar on it. Therefore, give back to Caesar what has his image on it. Give back to Caesar what he has a right to. But don't forget the fact that you have the image of God on you. And you need to make sure you give back to God what is rightfully his, which is namely your worship, your allegiance, your obedience. So what is Jesus doing here? <clears throat> He's saying there's not a necessarily necessary conflict between the two. That you can truly worship God and still honor the emperor, honor the king, honor the person in authority. So he essentially escapes their trap without giving them an out from paying taxes. And if you look at the the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, you see that the Bible affirms the very thing that Jesus is saying. And so my my point is, when we think about reading our Bibles closely, if they had read their Bible closely, they would have read verses like what we find in Proverbs 24, where it says, My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. When it talks about associating with those who are given to change, it's talking about revolutionaries. That's what it's talking about. It says, fear the Lord and the king. And you might say, well, they were, that was just talking about um, the kings of Israel. It wasn't talking about foreign kings. Well, if you read Ezekiel 17, you get an argument for honoring foreign kings as well. And so Jesus is essentially um, saying that if you read your Bible a little more clearly, you would find that you can pay your taxes and still honor God and that you should pay your taxes and honor God. And so the first question, Jesus answers in such a way that he doesn't quote a scripture, but he reflects the scripture. And if they had read their Bible more closely, they would have understood that as well. But in the next two uh, accounts or uh, portions of the passage, he actually does reference scripture. And so in verses 27 through 40, you have the question about the resurrection. Now, uh, there's a story about an elderly couple that died and they went to heaven and they meet Peter and Peter begins showing them around heaven and says, uh, this is your mansion over here where you're going to live. And the man says, well, how much is it going to cost? And Peter says, oh, it's free. And then they, they go into uh, this dining hall and there's great food everywhere and um, Peter says, and, and this is what you're going to get to eat. And the man says, well, how much is that going to cost? And he says, it's free. Uh, this is heaven. And so they go on from there, and they go to this beautiful golf course. And the man says, so what about this? And Peter says, you know the answer, right? It's free. And the man looks at his wife and says, you know what, honey? If it weren't for those uh, brand muffins you've been feeding me for the last 10 years, I would have been here a lot sooner. Meaning, I wish I had been here a lot sooner. The question is, how accurate is that in terms of what we should expect in heaven? Now, 
one of the things that um, is port- important to understand, and if you read books like Heaven, um, there I do believe it's that there there's continuity between this earth and the new earth. That there are going to be some things that are very very similar, if not exactly the same, and maybe just glorified in various ways. And we're not going to be floating around in in you know this misty. Uh, uh, cloudy uh, realm, you know, forever. It's actually going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That's what it says at the end of Revelation. And so that implies that there's going to be land and there's going to be trees and there's going to be all kinds of things that are very similar. But Paul also says that God has prepared for us things that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into to the heart of man all that he has prepared for us. So that means it's not going to be exactly like this um, world that we presently live in. And one of the things that's going to be different, Jesus says, is when you get to heaven, you're not going to be living in a mansion with your spouse. He's going to say there is no marriage in heaven. Because they come to him and say, they don't, by implication they say, you know, we don't believe in the resurrection and we think we've got a scenario that proves that there is no resurrection. And they point out a, a law in the Old Testament that said, if you got married and you didn't have any children and your husband died and didn't have a son to carry on the name of your family, then you're not to marry outside of um, your family, but the brother of uh, the husband is to marry the widow and raise up children in the name of the husband who died. And the scenario is this brother had six other brothers and he died and they all married his widow and none of them had any kids. And so they say when she dies and they go to heaven, there's going to be seven guys wanting to have a mansion and live with her. So... uh What's going to be the scenario? How are they going to work that out? And they thought that was a way of saying there's life after death is impossible because we've just proven it because there, there's no solution to this scenario. And Jesus says, you've got some wrong assumptions there. Your assumption is, is that there is marriage in heaven, that there's marriage after this life. And he says... The reason, or at least one reason, not the only reason, he says they um, they neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels. That doesn't mean we turn into angels. That means that there's no death. And he's saying the whole purpose of the story that you told me was he they, they married this widow so that they could give birth and carry on the name of the family. There's not going to be any, as wonderful as it is to have children and grandchildren, uh, there's not going to be any of that in heaven. And so there won't be any need for marriage, certainly from that perspective, because we will not die. We won't need to repopulate heaven because people are dying off. And so he highlights the fact that their assumption about marriage was wrong, but he also goes on to quote from um, their Old Testament. The Sadducees 
were not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the Old Testament. They also believed in oral tradition. The Sadducees did not receive oral tradition. They only believed, so to speak, in the Old Testament, but especially the first five books of the Old Testament, which is called the Law or the Book of Moses. And so Jesus goes to the book of Exodus, which is within the first five books of the Bible, and he goes through the story about the burning bush, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he highlights how God is talked about in that passage. And he says that in that passage, verse 37, he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he says, now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So what is Jesus doing? He's reading his Bible very carefully. He's highlighting the fact that the Bible doesn't say God was the God of Abraham, or he was the God of Jacob, or he was um, the God of Isaac, but he is. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob because they're alive. There's life after death, he says. And that verse speaks to it. And it's a way of saying, read your Bible very, very closely and pray that God would help you see what is right there because from Jesus' perspective, it's right there. It's right there. It tells you that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are still alive and that God is their God. Well, look at verses 41 through 44. The last thing that he talks about is the question of the son of David. One of the ways to try to understand what's going on here is back in the 1800s, there was a a man who was a well-known political figure. He kept a diary. And in that diary on a particular day, he wrote, went fishing with my son, day wasted. His son also kept a diary, which they were able to find. He, on that same day, said, went fishing with my father, the most wonderful day of my life. Now, there are all kinds of ways we could talk about that in terms of father and son relationships and that sort of thing. But my point is that what can fuel that kind of attitude from the father and what can fuel that kind of attitude from the son can be very much cultural in the sense that especially in in this culture that we're talking about right here, they would say that Abraham was greater than those who came after him, that Isaac was greater than those who came after him, that Jacob was greater than those who came after him. The idea was <clears throat> our ancestors are greater, and therefore those who come after much must be lesser they must not be greater so that the son could be looked down upon could be seen as less important than the father or the one who came before the ancestor so that's the connection between the story is that father could look at the son and think well i'm much more important than that son is and what i want to do is more important than what that son wants to do and yet the son could look at the father and see him as being 
terribly important and significant in his life. And so we have a culture in which they would assume that if David came before the Messiah, that David must be greater than the Messiah. It was that kind of attitude. So Jesus raises the question in verse 41. Excuse me. He says, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord And how is he his son? He's saying, how could someone who's going to come after David be someone that David calls Lord? Greater than I am. Someone that I worship, that I honor, that I obey. How could that be? How could the Messiah, if he's just a man, be greater than? Than David. Now, Jesus doesn't, in this passage here, answer the question, but the implication is he must be more than just a man. The religious leaders had a terrible time with Jesus because they didn't like the fact that people honored him as if he were the Messiah, and they didn't like the fact that he claimed things that only God could claim. He claimed to forgive sins. He claimed to be one with the Father. They didn't like the fact that he claimed to be more than just a man because in light of their reading of the Bible, the Messiah isn't more than just a man. But Jesus says, you need to read your Bible more closely because the Messiah is being talked about here in Psalm 110 and it's very, very clear that he is divine. He is Lord, and he's also king and priest, which is connected to uh, Tiberius Caesar and how he thought of himself. So you've got these questions and these answers going back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders, and one way to see the implications of that for you and I is to say that those religious leaders had read their Bibles more carefully And if they had examined their own assumptions, they could have seen the truth that was right there in the Bible. So in wrapping this up and just asking ourselves, how can we apply this in our own lives? I would say, first of all, come humbly to God with your questions. Don't walk away and don't come to God with your fist raised. Don't do either one of those, but come humbly to God and believe that God really is willing and able to answer your questions, whatever they may be. You notice how patient Jesus is? He knows they're trying to trick him and kill him. He doesn't call down fire from heaven and destroy them. He says, show me a coin. He teaches them He leads them to life. He points them toward life. He points them toward the truth. When they deserved judgment, they deserved rejection. They were trying to kill love personified. And yet Jesus patiently 
answers their questions, patiently uses an illustration, patiently directs them toward the scripture, patiently points them to the answers that they really need to understand and to see. And so we need to be like Mary when she heard that she she was going to have a baby. And she humbly asked, how can this be since I am a virgin? How can this be? It's not wrong to ask questions. In fact, the only way you're going to find God is by asking questions. The only way you're going to grow is by asking questions. And so ask questions. Don't walk away, but don't shake your fist, but humbly come to God and ask the questions that you have. Secondly, believe there are good answers to difficult questions. Don't assume that there's no good answer to the question that you have. That's what the uh, religious leaders were doing. They assume there's no good answer for this. There's no good answer to the question, whose wife is she going to be in heaven? There's no good answer. And Jesus says, no, there's a very good answer to that question. Um, there's a story in the Old Testament in Second Kings 7 where uh, the king of Aram is besieging uh, Samaria and there's a famine in the city. And people are starving and they're dying and they're even beginning to eat their own children. It's a horrible situation. And uh, the king of um, Israel comes to Elisha and he's mad. He says, why doesn't God do something about this? And Elisha says, well, God is going to do something about it. By this time tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, the um, instead of spending, you know, let's say, uh, $500 on a donkey's head, uh, it's going to be back to the normal price of $5, just by way of comparison. The officer of the king looked at Elisha when he said that and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Basically, how in the world could God ever do that? I don't believe that that can happen. And Elisha says, you'll see it, but you won't enjoy it. And as the story plays out, um, God causes the king of Aram's army to hear a sound, and they run off. And these lepers go out, and they find out that they've run off, and they start eating, and they go back and tell everybody else, and they come out, and they start eating, and it plays out just like Elisha said it was. And yet the royal officer is holding the gate for people to go out of the city and he gets trampled and he dies. He sees it, but he doesn't eat of it, just like Elisha said. It's a difficult question. How in this world, how in the world is this going to change so quickly and so easily? I don't see how there's a good question to that, excuse me, a good answer to that question. And as a result, he suffered the consequences of rejecting the possibility that yeah, maybe there is really a good answer to this difficult question of how God could do that. Finally, that brings me to the primary application and brings me back to the, the question that I asked at the beginning. is how closely do you read your Bible? Don't be afraid of the questions you have because God's not. Go to God with your questions humbly, questions about your own life, what you're, you've suffered, what other people are suffering, 
um, questions that you find in the Bible that are difficult, whether it's the doctrine of hell or any other thing that you might find in the Bible, go to God humbly with that. Believe there are good questions that a good God can give you to answer those uh, questions. But read your Bible. Because if you go out to uh, the desert uh, and get on your ATV and ride out into the middle of the desert and say, okay, God, this is my question, don't expect God to tell you anything. Why? Because he's already told you. It just happens to be in here. He's not likely to speak audibly from heaven, although there are many times I wish he would. Many times I'd, I'd love a post-it note from heaven just telling me exactly the answer to my question. God doesn't typically do that. But what he does do is he says, everything you need to know is right here in this book. And if you really need an answer to the question you're asking, there is something in this book that will address that question sufficiently. Does that mean he's going to answer every possible question? No. But it does mean that every necessary answer will be given. Every necessary answer will be given so that you can trust him, so that you can love other people. He will give you answers to those questions if you go to him and go to his word. Because that's what Jesus did. He simply redirected them to the Bible. And the Bible affirmed all that he said. And so my encouragement to you is not to be like that football player and not just assume there's no good answers to the questions I have, but believe that this is the word of God and that there are good questions that can be answered with good answers found through his word. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. We acknowledge that we all have questions We have questions about our own suffering. We have questions about other people's sufferings. We have questions about difficult circumstances and why things played out the way they did, disappointments, why relationships are the way they are. Um, We have questions about even things we read in the Bible that are hard, like the doctrine of hell and other things that we find there. Father, do pray for everyone in this room that we would not be afraid of our questions and that we would not think that you're afraid of our questions. But believe that as we see Jesus portraying your interaction with the religious leaders so patiently, with such love and kindness, that we would believe that you will engage us in that way as well. And that as we go to you, seeking you through your word, praying for understanding, praying to, to see what's right there in front of us in the Bible and seeing how it a, applies to us. I pray that we would believe that there are good answers to the good questions that we have. And I pray that you would grow us in our faith, pray that you'd meet us where we are, and I pray that if there's anyone here not trusting in you, Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sins and for the gift of your righteousness, I pray that they would seek you for the answer to the question, the answers to the questions that they have and that you would meet them and that you'd meet the deepest needs of their heart for you. We thank you that you are so patient with us, so kind and so ready to meet us 
if we'll just come to you humbly and seek you in your word. Father, we thank you for that encouragement. May we all be encouraged to do that in greater, deeper, richer ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.